Well, last time we actually quit with verse 27, or we covered 26. We're going to begin in verse 27 in chapter 9 today. And last week we talked about plagues 5, 6, and 7. The fifth plague was a pestilence on the livestock, specifically stated is in the field. And God made a list, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. And there were a couple of things that God told Moses to say that were very specific. It's going to come at a definite time tomorrow, and also there's going to be a differentiation for sure. A hundred percent of the Egyptian livestock in the field will die, and absolutely none of Israel's livestock will die. And sure enough, the next day, the Egyptian livestock, the pestilence came upon them, and anything that was in the field was dead, and none, zero, deaths in the herds and livestock of the children of Israel. And uh, we know that because it says Pharaoh went out to had it checked. And so that's kind of a double miracle. I mean, I don't want to make this sound wrong because we have a number of cats, so it wasn't all that special. But, you know, we had a cat die this last week, just not from anything in particular other than old age for a cat. And... Um, so some deaths among the herds of livestock in any given day with all the people of Israel would have been normal. But on this day, none died. So there could be no claim that, well, they got part of the plague at all. I mean, it's just zero. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the Israelites go. And next we had the plague six, which was of boils and... Moses and Aaron were directed to get handfuls of soot uh, from a kiln, and they did. They threw it into the air in the sight of Pharaoh as instructed, and this fine dust settles over all of Egypt. And as that dust settled, they were settled, and his sores broke out on both man and beast. And it affected all, the magi- all of the Egyptians, including the magi- magicians, to the point that they couldn't even, the words are, stand before Moses. They, they couldn't even show themselves. They were completely silenced by this plague. But once again, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen and was not going to let the people go. So then in the seventh plague, God sends Moses and Aaron with a message to Pharaoh, let my people go. But God uh, also told him that he was restraining his strength or Pharaoh would have already been completely wiped out, that he was allowed to stand so God could show his power. And God accused him. He said, you exalt yourself over me. And so he announces the seventh plague, which is going to be hail. It's going to come again tomorrow of historic proportions. So get your livestock undercover. Anything you leave out will die. And so there are even some Egyptians fearing God did so. They put their animals in shelters, and the rest uh, experienced this hail with fire and thunder, and all the livestock and all the plants were shattered or dead, but it did not happen in Goshen where the Israelites leave. And that takes us to Pharaoh's reaction for the seventh plague, this great hail. And that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 27, and I'm going to read through the end of that chapter. It says in in beginning in 927, Then Pharaoh sent Moses and Aaron and said to them, 
So Pharaoh is sending for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time. The Lord, the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so in the midst of this hail and fire, which probably could have been lightning or literal fire coming down, and all of this thunder... Pharaoh sends for Moses and Aaron. We've got to stop this. And he starts out by saying, I've sinned this time, meaning I've sinned this once. The Lord is the one that's righteous. I and my people are wicked ones, says Pharaoh. So while in the midst of consequences, Pharaoh is somewhat willing to say, okay, I'm wicked, God's righteous. We've sinned. We're wrong. Stop it. And, you know, if you've ever been around some of those storms, can you imagine some of those great storms that you've lived through in life that just wouldn't end? At some point, you'd want to go crazy with all the pounding. I mean, in our house, when we hear the first few hailstones in a good storm, it's like, uh uh-oh. And then, you know, then all of a sudden, it's just all this pounding, and that's a very light hail usually. And so here's Pharaoh reacting to that. Go ask God. And... He doesn't say it that's recorded here, but the implication is, please stop. Go ask God. Make it quit. I'll let you go. You will stay no longer. Now, what does Moses tell Pharaoh? I mean, he says, okay, I'll go out, and I'll spread out my hands to the Lord, and this will all stop. What else does he say? What does he know about Pharaoh? He doesn't. Yeah, but I know you don't fear God yet. Moses says, this isn't done. I know it's not done. I can tell you don't like consequences. But as far as a fear of God himself, you're just trying to manipulate God. You're promising to let him go. But I know it doesn't come out of a heart that wants to be now serving God. It comes out of a desire to have this storm stop. And... Uh, when it stops, you'll know that the earth is the Lord's. And so uh, Pharaoh is given a lot of evidence in this plague about the position and power of God. The storm was predicted and it came. When it stops, it will also be as a part of what God is doing and a request directly to God. And... The people that put their stuff inside were protected 
just as God said, um, but he is ignoring all that evidence. He just wants the consequences to stop. So here is God saying, or God through Moses saying, you don't yet have the fear that you need. Did Pharaoh have no fear of God? He had fear of his consequences. But he didn't have fear of being on the wrong side of God. He just wanted to make things go the right way he wanted them to go. So we get down to verse 31 and we're told that the flax and the barley are ruined. Um, the flax is what we would call flax. It's, a, it's, you know, it's, pro, it's in the bud. Um, when it matures, it brings out grassy. It's grassy and it brings out purple flowers. Um, and, and the barley, it says, is in the ear. Don't think like corn here. Think more like wheat heads uh, when you look at what barley is. Um, but uh, they're all ruined because of where they were in the stage of their development and the way the year goes. But the wheat they used, uh, not winter wheat like we do, but the wheat they used and spelt, which is similar to rye, it really wasn't ruined because it was going to be yielding its fruit later in the year. So we're, we're told that right in God's account here for us through Moses, that a lot of the crops, they're done for the year. They're not going to come back. They're not going to be uh, used to feed the people, but some are still have hope of coming back because of where, when, they, when they will be ripening. Reminds me of on the winter wheat when we would have frost. My grandpa would get nervous once it jointed that first joint because if it we had a good hard if we had a freeze after that then his wheat crop was done and so it's a similar kind of a thing but very different because of the style of wheat they were doing but there was a point at which the wheat wouldn't come back so in verse 33 Moses leaves the city spreads out his hands to the Lord and everything stopped and just as Moses had said with the insight from God, with the direct knowledge from God, <clears throat> Pharaoh did not fear God, and so promises to Moses or to God through Moses were not to be kept. He returned to his sinful pattern. He hardened his heart. He and his servants along with him, they believe they can outmaneuver God, and they won't let them go in verse 35. And this was just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. So even though Pharaoh doesn't fear God yet, we keep getting evidence, reasons why, insights why we should see that even in Pharaoh's denial, it is a testimony of what God is doing here because he is steps ahead of Pharaoh at every turn. He's a steps ahead of Pharaoh through all eternity. God is ordering these events, but just as God had said, another reinforcement of God's power, it is not happening. Pharaoh is hardening his heart again. He is sinning, and they're not going. Um, for the most part, this plague relates to the Egyptian god of Geb, um, when we get to a later plague, I'm going to talk about how all these gods work together, but this is the God of the earth. 
they believed that his laughter caused earthquakes and that he had power over natural phenomenon. And uh, he's the one that allowed the crops to grow by how he handled nature. You know, we used to have the advertisements, you know, don't fool, don't, don't fool with Mother Nature. I don't remember. It's been long enough ago I've forgotten and I'm thankful. Uh, but, you know, this, like, like the nature is its own entity and not a part of what God has dominion over. But they saw him as the one that let the crops grow and controlled nature for their benefit. I don't know how this connects with it, but he's also the one known as the father of snakes. Whatever. Um, yeah. Um, these Egyptians had a thing with snakes that I could never be an Egyptian. Okay. Uh, it's also a symbol of Pharaoh's power because Pharaoh was seen as Geb's earthly representative. And so this is a slap against Geb, and it's a slap directly against Pharaoh as his representative. Uh, and um, so Geb is often depicted as reclining with vegetation all over him. Picture a man in a lounge chair or a being in a lounge chair or whatever, a statue. Um, sometimes, often with the head of a goose or a man with a goose on his head. Now, to me, that's not very... Um, what's the right word? That's not a flattering image to put with a person but or with a, quote, God, but that's how they saw him. And so the seventh plague or the eighth plague, seventh plague, uh, has come and gone. Um, questions, comments on this hail? Okay. Rick has one, but he's going to hold back. All right. So that takes us over to chapter 10. And the next plague that's coming is plague 8. And let me read what God's word says about that. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. So we're getting, we're getting the leadership of the Egyptian power altogether. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell the hearing in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land, so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and all the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither you nor your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from this day, that they may come upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their gods. God, do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. 
And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Now go, not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt. For the locusts that may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that ha the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, <clears throat> and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the, uh, brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. They, there had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many locusts again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land <clears throat> and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, If I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Oh, whoops, I think I put an extra letter in that. Back up. Yes, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once, and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one of the locusts, not, not one locust was left in all the ter of e territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. So here we are in the eighth plague, the locusts, and the Lord says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart and his servants' hearts, so I can perform my sins and my signs, sorry. And uh, that word there for signs or the phrase, really, means to deal harshly or to make sport. So they, I've hardened their hearts so I can, I can do what I want to do, so I can be harsh with them and show myself. Verse 2 says, you're going to have a legacy. You will be telling the next generations of how I made the mockery of Egypt, how I performed my signs. And so this is laying the groundwork for uh, a time where the sons of Israel can look back to and use it to proclaim who God is, his power and his might and his provision to the descendants that come after them and should be a part of their identity. And so what, is, what God is setting up for them is a dependence on him, a recognition of who he is. As he forms the nation out of these children of Israel, 
He's giving them a legacy so that they can recognize their power as a nation, their security comes from God himself. What do nations today depend on? Army. What's that? Their armies. Their armies? Tax base. Tax base. <laughs> Their economies? What did you say, Jim? Government. Government. Planners. Uh, man tries to control his own destiny. Now, some of us look at those that think they're in charge, and we may say, I don't like where they're going, but nonetheless... It, it, it's all this, these things that surround politics and government and power through military ability. And what did Egypt depend on? That's what Egypt depended on. That's what they had. They had it in abundance along with these gods that they expected to do things for them uh, in particular ways. Um, and so Israel's, and so Egypt's great in all those things. And I, and I guess I would say, you know, here's another thing to think about for a minute. How did it go when Moses first went to Pharaoh and said, you need to let these people go? What happened? Their workload was doubled. Their workload went up. I don't know if it was doubled, but it went up. Their economy kind of slumped. Yeah, they were oppressed through work. And not only that, you've got to go get your own straw. Um, and so when Moses came back, what, what, what did they, how did they react to Moses? Not very well. In our vernacular, we go, thanks a lot. You know, we, we, you came here saying you're going to get us out of here. And instead, we're making more bricks and gathering our own straw. And they're doing that to try to make it so that we will not prosper as a people in our health. I mean, they're trying to make it to where we're going to work these folks to death, literally. That was the plan. We're going to, we're going to diminish this, this great group of people here that's grown up in our midst. And so as things go on, if, if it were today, how would the Israelites try to fix their problems? What would they depend on? Protests? We need a new pharaoh? Give us people that respect us? We've been made victims. Life's not fair. Fix this, right? Isn't that what we would expect people to do? If the Israelites had been left to try to find some sort of political solution, some sort of solution out of their, out of their influence, out of their request for fairness, would they have made it to the promised land? Now, what they were looking for was relief from Pharaoh. And what they had trouble seeing, at least at the beginning, and what were, the, the curtain isn't pulled back too much on the Israelites' thoughts as these plagues are going on. We can surmise some of it very easily. If you live in Goshen and you didn't get hailed on, that's a good thing compared to what happened to the Egyptians, right? And we can surmise some of it by what we see when we get to the studying their path across the desert. One of the more common phrases was, were there not enough sites for graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? 
So did they want what God wanted for them? Would they ha- were they back there going, yeah, God's going to get us out of here and going to make us a great nation? That's not who they were. They were just like us. They wanted politics. I'm sure that they wanted they wanted relief. They wanted they just wanted to be able to exist in a way that was pleasant for them. Um, and God had much greater plans for them. And even after God establishes them, um, which is quite an ordeal that we'll be studying, they didn't change a whole lot. They saw all this. God says, it's my purpose, so you'll have a legacy. And on occasion, they would go back to their legacy and look it up. For the most part, they went about trying to be powerful and make their economy work and be a great nation in the eyes of their neighbors instead of in the eyes of God. Just some thoughts. As we look at what's going on in the world, it's real easy to think, it needs to be this way. Right now, today, who's sovereign over this world? Somehow has God lost control? So right now, from God's perspective, and the way he's dealing with uh, problems, and what he intends to establish, which, by the way, we ought to read Hebrews soon. You can do it on your own. A land, houses not made with hands of men. A new heaven and a new earth. Keep reading. God's got things going where they need to go. Now, does that mean that we don't go out and work hard for fairness and freedom and righteous living and good values? No, we still do that. But we need to recognize that things aren't really, even though they miss the hail, and even though they miss some of the other plagues, they're still having in Goshen, and they're still making bricks, and they still don't have their own straw, and Pharaoh won't even let them go out and, and do anything for God himself. They're still slaves. So while God is doing what he's doing, they've got some advantages, but they've still got some trouble in this land. And... So we ought not be too quick to think we know just how everything ought to go. Is that fair? God knows how everything ought to go, and he's making it go that way even on a day when I'm being oppressed and persecuted, and you can just go down the list. Put whatever you want to in it. God's still sovereign God that day. And if God's still sovereign that day, just as what's going on here God's still sovereign, by here I mean in, in Egypt, God's still sovereign as he marches us toward the end of this world. And it's going to have some tough moments. So that took us through verse 2. Let's look, go down and look at verse 3. Um, So verse 3, Moses and Haran went to Pharaoh and did as ordered. And they said, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long before you're going to let my people go? Needs to be now. So now will you, but you continue to refuse to humble yourself before me, God says. 
He's really asking him to worship and obey God as Jehovah, God Almighty. Let my people go serve me. And the message continues in verse 4. If you refuse, tomorrow I'm going to bring in locusts. And by the way, locusts, you probably have heard this enough times, but this isn't the uh, cicada. This isn't what we often think of locusts that make the buzzing in the trees. These are grasshoppers. Maybe a little bit different variety, maybe bigger. But, and grasshoppers were not uncommon in the area. Uh, they had had swarms in the past. I've lived through some swarms here. And they often prayed to their crop gods, and they had several that come together. We just talked about Geb, but there are various crop gods that they would pray to. And one of their big prayers the Egyptians would make to these crop gods was keep the locusts away. And so they knew what locusts were, and they knew that this was, that locusts were never a good thing. It's one of the natural cycles of bugs coming in that they didn't want. It typically came when the land was a little drier and a little hotter than maybe it would normally be. They, that tends to foster their, their thriving and their movement. And so um, God says the extent of these locusts is going to be massive. They're going to cover everything. You won't see the ground. They'll be that thick. And they'll eat everything left over from the hail and every new sprout that comes up. And by the way, all the houses will be filled for you Egyptians and your servants. None of the previous generations, God's very clear, have ever seen anything like this. And so Moses turned and left. And as he is gone, the servants speak up. How long is this man going to be a snare to us, a trap to us? So who are they thinking is the power here? Moses. Moses gave them the answer to that question. He's going to continue to be a snare or a trap to them until you, Pharaoh, humble yourself under the hand of God. When you're ready to follow God, when you're ready to be humble and say, God is God, I'm not. God says, let them go. They're going. That's what it would take. But, the mo but these servants don't realize that. They just think that they need to deal with Moses. And so they also say, don't you see? It's, this is a point when we're starting to see some internal strife. They're looking at Pharaoh and saying, don't you see? Egypt is destroyed. They're expecting the locusts to come and finish it too, by the way. So they're, giving, they're the ones giving him advice. They're impatient with Pharaoh himself. <clears throat> and so here's a question. Do leaders matter to a nation? Absolutely. Uh, read Kings and Chronicles. Um, and as you read in Judges and you read through that, leaders lead a nation in a good way or a bad way, and there are consequences for that. And here are these leaders that are unwilling to humble themselves. God is using that. He's keeping their hearts hard so he can show his might and power. But that's who they are. They don't have any intention of leading Egypt in a good way. They want to lead Egypt in a way which is protecting their power and their might and the way things they want things to be. But anyway, so the advisors have lit a fire under Pharaoh. And so he brings Moses and Aaron back. And it sounds like 
Okay, I'm acquiescing. Go serve the Lord your God. And, but he goes on there in verse 8 to say, now, now who's going to be going? And who does Moses tell him is going? Everybody. Everybody. Young and old, sons and daughters. Oh, by the way, we need all the animals too because we're going to give a feast to the Lord. And Pharaoh responds with some sarcasm, with some harsher words that when you, you could read it not that way, but he says, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. In other words, forget it. Um, I am not going to let you take you and your little ones. Absolutely not. And then he accuses them. You're planning evil. You've got a conspiracy going here. You've got a hidden plan. You're not going to just go worship. You're doing, you've got something else in mind. Um, so, not so. Not going to happen. In verse 11 then, he, he dismissively dis, sends them away. Now go. The men among you can go and serve the Lord if that's what you want. So that word men there is significant. If you're going, it's just the men. And so he drove them out of his presence. What's Pharaoh's intent here? Yeah, he, he's, he's going to manipulate. He's, going, he's trying to give just enough that these locusts don't come, but not enough so that these people can actually go and worship God. And Moses has a pretty good response. Um, we, young and old, sons and daughters, all of us, we're going to, oh no, I'm sorry, did I skip something? Let me make sure I'm in the right spot. Okay, never mind, I'm redoing something. Let's go back up. Now verse 12, so Moses, at the Lord's direction, stretches his hand out over all of Egypt. And the locusts come, God brings a great wind out of the east, which is, um, did I say that right? Yeah, out of the east, which is bringing it across the land. And so all of these, I'm sorry, it's out of the west, isn't it? No. Okay, brings this great wind out of the east, and these locusts come overnight, and they are everywhere. Um, this is lots of locusts. It made things dark, and it says that it was the greatest locust swarm ever in the past or ever would be in the future. I'm sorry, when I read this, I couldn't help but think about that term that has become so popular that just kind of rubs me a little backwards, this goat. Greatest of all time? Well, this is the goat of locusts, swarms. They are just everywhere. And I know some of you are in the ag world, and I wish I could tell you what year it was. It would have been back in the 70s or 80s. We had a big problem where we were uh, harvesting our hay. Um, the alfalfa fields where it showed up the most, that's probably because they like the leaves off the alfalfa, but we were having some problem over in the brome field too, but the brome was high enough at the time when I was out there harvesting. You didn't, you didn't really see them. But if you'd walk around, you know the cartoon, uh, 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 Charlie Brown, and, and I don't know the cartoon very well, but they got the one character that's 
always dirty, and so everywhere he walks, you know, these little clouds. Is it Linus? Pigpen. That's okay. But anywhere, everywhere he walks, you know, these clouds show up. That's the way it was in the one alfalfa field I remember real well. I mean, you'd walk around, and as you'd take a step, locusts, grasshoppers, it just, and as you drove the tractor through the field, uh, at that time, we were still using a, a mower with, that was side-mounted, you know, your old John Deere tractor, and you're cutting out there and laying it down, and uh, then you'd have to go back through and rake it and stuff. And those locusts would jump ahead of that mower. It's like you had this wave of grasshoppers just rolling. It, it was amazing. It would have been interesting, except if you ever stopped and looked at your alfalfa plants, you were baling stems. Weren't many leaves left, and the leaves are where the nutrition is. Very frustrating to the people, and of course we did the things we could do. Um, I think we sprayed it, but I don't remember. I don't remember those days very well. I just remember all those grasshoppers. But now take, take your image of that, of when you might have experienced grasshoppers. Like, they'll get in your yard too, but hey, if the grasshoppers eat the grass, they don't have to mow. But anyway, um, that's not very good. But anyway, um, take that. Now imagine the grasshoppers are so thick that you can't see the ground. It's a lot of grasshoppers. And occasionally we'd see them move around. I don't know if they finished with one field or another. And they would kind of remind you what the blackbirds do. They'd kind of get up in this thing and they'd kind of move their way over and they might make a cloud that was eight foot tall as they moved across or maybe not eight maybe it's four I don't know but they'd make these clouds as they moved sometimes and that's when, when it says it was dark that's what I visualize is you got clouds of grasshoppers in the air getting between you and the sun what a deal this was and by the way grasshoppers eat a lot uh, I, I, I read a statistic and I forgot it, so I'm not going to give you one that's wrong. But they eat a lot. And everywhere they settled, they ate everything. They even ate the stuff that was trying to come up. It says that as the shoots would come, the trees would come up, they'd eat them. They ate all the fruit. When they were done, there was nothing green left. No trees or plants had any fruit over all the land of Egypt. And so, in verse 16, Pharaoh quickly called for Moses and Aaron. And he's starting a theme that he never finishes, that he never carries through. I've sinned against Jehovah your God and against you. I have offended you. Please forgive my sin this once. I don't know why he keeps going to this once. I mean... You didn't just do something once, but now forgive me and ask God to remove this death from me. Is he humble yet? No. no. He's fearful. Death is upon him. Death for his nation. Why? Even the flax and the barley that, um, no, the wheat and the, I forget the name of the other one, that survived, now their shoots are eaten up. I mean, they're in trouble. In verse 18, 
it says Moses left and asked God to do what Pharaoh had asked him to do. So the Lord reverses the wind, a west wind now very strong, and he drove all of those locusts into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all of Egypt. Now I'm telling you, if that happened, wouldn't that itself be an amazing miracle to watch? We went to bed with locusts and got up without one. And if all the houses were full and everything, can you imagine what that was like before they were gone? Um, and by the way, Pharaoh's advisors in verse 7 were right. This guy's still a trap. When are you going to do something different? But everybody's hearts are hardened before we're done, and they don't let them go. And that's what happens in verse 20. Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't let them go. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's not yet humble, only fearful of consequences. And you know, it's real easy to be consequence-driven, isn't it? It hits a little too close to home, doesn't it? Oh, the Lord's good to me. I've been faithful to him, and he's been faithful to me. Just look at my 401k. Oh, the stock market went down to nothing. What am I going to do? I, I, can't even, I won't be able to live in my retirement. Who is blessing you? The God of 401k? Well, anyway. Um, living by faith is very different from, and, than the way Pharaoh is living. And being consequent driven is very different than living by faith. Um, and so we need to be repenting out of love of God and worship him independent of consequences. Okay, so any comments about the pet grasshopper story? Lots of grasshoppers. Can you imagine walking down the sidewalk? You'd really want good shoes, wouldn't you? Sandals wouldn't be enough. Boots. Yeah, boots. Yeah, probably boots would be necessary. Okay, so let's look at verses uh, 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones can go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware. Do not see my face again. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you're right. I shall never see your face again. So after Pharaoh sends 
Moses and Aaron out, saying, you're not going. He sinned again. The Lord then tells Moses, no warning to Pharaoh, no comments, nothing. But he tells Moses, stretch out your hand to the sky, for darkness will fall over the land of Egypt, a darkness that may be felt. Has anyone ever been somewhere or been in a situation where they had a darkness they could feel? Inside a cave, yes. I've had that experience too. Total solar eclipses are the same way too. Uh, the solar eclipse that we had in like 2016 or whatever. Like 2017. 2017, yeah. And by the way, I... It was August of 17. Well, anyway, there's another one coming, by the way. I know people that are uh, one of the aviation groups that I'm a part of. I didn't do it last time. I'm not going to do it this time. But they all got together and flew their airplanes off to some place so they could see it better than here. Yep. Well, that's true, but I would say if you had the cave experience, some, some of you that have had that experience, I have, it isn't just a temperature drop, is it? If you get to the point you feel it, it really is, yeah, Rick's doing this. It's, it's got its own nature. Uh, I've experienced it three times, I think at least three times, in caves. And uh, I'll tell you about one of them that was really interesting. But um, the, the first one, I remember the guy said, look, I'm going to turn off all the lights. But it's only going to be for one minute. And when that minute's up, the lights are coming back on. Um, and he says, and I'll talk to you a little bit during that minute. So boom, everything went dark. And he said, try to see your fingers. That was the first thing he did. And he keeps talking to us. You would have thought he was delivering an inauguration address. He kept talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And you're going like, one minute? You can't tell time. So then, and I think he wants this to happen. You know, you know what, What's your reaction when you go, how long has it been? What are you going to do? Oh, well. <laughs> Now, some people could. And you, every once in a while, you'd see a little watch light go on. You go, huh? No, no, no lights. But that minute felt like hours. Now I'm, I'm exaggerating. It didn't feel like hours, but it sure felt like more than one minute. And he said, "We learned the hard way. We got to keep talking. If you don't talk during that minute, well, you've got people. If you're going to do a whole minute, like that's a big time. You've got to keep talking, or people freak out. It is an experience that is just." And, and now let's imagine an eternity. I had it down to go read it, but I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk you through real quickly. Jesus tells the parable of the marriage feast. And the king's, his son's having a wedding. He had these people lined up to come, so he sends the slaves, his servants, to go bring the people in, and they're all too busy. And he, by the way, has them all killed. And then, so, okay, we'll go out in the highways and byways and bring in people. So they do. One person shows up without proper wedding garb in the way the parable is told. And God says, or who's the king, the king represents God in this, send him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and I think that's the kind of darkness they're having here. Now, not in a way. It's, it's a little taste of it because it's only three days 
But in heaven, there's light. Don't need a sun, right? Because the presence of God through Christ is our light. They don't have that in the eternal punishment of hell. And I just, I can't imagine total darkness for an eternity. I think the Egyptians had a lot of trouble with it for three days. And, and I'm going to go beyond even like, and I'm glad you brought up the eclipse. Because this was more than an eclipse. They didn't have light in their houses. I don't know how they normally would get themselves a light so they could move or maneuver around at night. Find the chamber pot, whatever they needed to do. They had no light. This was darkness everywhere. So this is more than just blocking out the sun, I believe. God would not allow them a light of any kind anywhere. To the point, nobody went anywhere. I mean, it'd be like instant blindness. I mean, think about if you couldn't see at all, instantly. You'd have trouble getting around your house. You might make it around your house a little bit to do a few essential things, get a glass of water, whatever. Are you going to try to go to town? I say go to town because I live in the country. But, you know, what, what are you going to... This stopped... Egypt dead in its tracks. And it was tough. It was a darkness that could be felt. I was going to tell you about the other one in the cave. One of them we had, and it freaked me out because I was afraid of what was behind the eyes. I was in a cave one time, so I'm going to turn the light out. And we're going to wait a few minutes and we're going to look around. And when you look around, you can see all these little eyes looking back at you. Rats. Mostly rats. He says, okay, now pick out a pair of eyes and watch what happens when I turn the lights on. Boy, did those eyes and critters, I mean, occasionally you get a glimpse. I didn't see snakes. That's my concern. But <clears throat> those things went behind the rocks. I mean, just poof. They, and he said, that's the difference in light. You shine the light on people. And, and it was very biblical. Um, evil doesn't like light. They want to hide. But anyway, so... Um, they, 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 so when this light was out, they couldn't see each other. They didn't leave home unless they were Israelites. They had light. So in verse 24, Pharaoh calls out to Moses, go serve the Lord. Now, the three days have passed, obviously. Leave your herds and your flocks, but take your little ones. Pharaoh refuses to get it, doesn't he? He just doesn't get it yet. Moses has made it clear. He makes it clear again. We've got to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. Therefore, when we go, our livestock are going along and not one hoof is going to stay behind. And we don't know which ones we're going to need for the sacrifices until we get there. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He still wasn't willing to let him go. Pharaoh said, get away from me. And Pharaoh, who's been, as God said it, you have been unwilling to humble yourself and serve me. You put yourself in a contest with me for power. Pharaoh said, I'm taking God on on this one. The next time I see you, you're going to die. So make sure that we don't see each other. Is that a valid threat? Well, from Pharaoh's perspective, it is. 
He doesn't know he doesn't have the power to kill Moses, although you'd have thought he'd have tried it sooner maybe. In reality, from the truth we know, you're not going to get to kill Moses. And Moses says, you're right. I will never see you again. What did Moses mean by that? The end is here, Pharaoh. This is it. After the next, after this plague, we will never see each other again because after the next plague, God is telling Moses some level of information, but God has made it known to Moses, Pharaoh's about to die, and you won't see him alive again. And of course, God has already said that there is a portion of my plagues that's going to include death. And um, so here, here it comes. Uh, you will never see me, and I won't see you again, says Moses. Which is kind of interesting. Why did Moses go into the land of Midian? To escape Pharaoh. To escape, not this Pharaoh, but a previous Pharaoh. Yeah. Uh, because that Pharaoh did what? What was that? What was it? What was he escaping from that Pharaoh? He wanted, he wanted to kill him, and why? Because Moses killed an Egyptian. Moses had killed an Egyptian, and was trying to protect the Israelites. The Israelites didn't understand it or care much for it then either. But so he goes off to Midian and just is real happy being a nobody in Midian. He married a Midian woman and was tending her her father's sheep. And when God came to call him, he didn't want to go. And we went through all of his excuses, one of which is, I can't talk in front of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh has just told Moses, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. Does it seem to intimidate Moses very much? No, it's not to say Moses, is it? Well, you're right. We're not going to see each other again because... This will be the last time we see each other. And in the back, Moses has to know that Pharaoh is about to lose his life in the events to come in the coming days. And they won't come in contact with each other again. What changed Moses? Moses, I can't speak. Okay, well, I'm going to send Aaron to do the talking for you. Has Aaron been doing the talking? What changed? Why is Moses, what? Somebody said something. God changed him. Yeah, God is leading him through his Holy Spirit. He has... What, what, after the first encounter with Pharaoh and the result in more bricks with, and we, you get your own straw, how did Moses react to God? Do you remember? That's why God did that. What, what, what are you doing? Well, then God came back to him and said... I'm going to make you, let's find the words. I don't, I'm going to mess it up, and I don't want to mess it up. Uh, uh, yeah, in verse 22 of chapter 5, he says, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? I came to do good things, and when bad things are happening. Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to his people and has not delivered your people at all. And chapter 6 is where he's 
starts to say, hey, Moses, now you shall see what I will do. Pharaoh, under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he'll drive them out. And um, at, the la at, at verse uh, 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and said, I give them a charge. I gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring... Uh, now I can't read it right. We have to get these glasses looked at. Um, well, I'm looking and uh, let me let me look at that verse again because I think that's the one I want. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them. Okay, gave to Moses and Aaron a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I think there's a moment going on right here where God is putting Moses and Aaron, particularly Moses, in a position that they understand. I think they realize we're talking on behalf of God. We've been given a responsibility. It's responsibility over the sons of Israel, but it's also responsibility to do what God wants done to take these people out of the land. And God had told him earlier in the chapter, I'm going to show you what I am going to do. And so Moses is changed by the work of God's Spirit in his life. And Moses is charged by the Holy Spirit. Did Moses write the book of Exodus as well as the rest of the other in the five of the Pentateuch on his own? Or was that by the Holy Spirit and the scriptures clearly tell us that's by the Holy Spirit this is the Holy Spirit at work in Moses life and Moses is growing as it occurs growing by the power of God working within him questions comments sun in Goshen <clears throat> you think the sun shone in Goshen or they could light lights I think it was probably both Well, we're going to see waters parted and days stand still. So, you know, it fits right in. Now, now I said that. The scriptures are not clear what their source of light was. But I don't think they were having to struggle with any darkness at all. Because I think the light shone in Goshen. Does the text say that they, they had the ability to have lights in their houses, though? Well, I... I don't, I mean, even, even on the Egyptian side, it doesn't say they didn't have the ability, but it's pretty clear. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, if they couldn't go anywhere, they couldn't take the lamp outside. Yeah, th yeah, they, they um, let me get back there, make sure I didn't misspeak. I do that once in a while, and I hate it when I do. Um, yeah, I got to get, I'm, I'm way, I'm way on the wrong chapter. Um, right. 10, 22. So the Moses stretched hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. If it's going to be a darkness that's thick, they're not going to have some artificial lights to diminish it. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place. Yeah, I mean, it's clear. It's black. 
black as ink. But then the juxtaposition is that the Israelites in Goshen had lights in their homes. Right? Well, at least in their homes. They probably had whatever was normal they had, including, I would say, sunshine would be my guess. I, I hate to say guess. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I don't think it's intentionally by implication. Uh, the sun god was listed as a god. Yeah. And God was obviously destroying the sun god. Yeah, that's right. So in Egypt, there was no light. The law was not able to provide any light. In Goshen, there was normal light, which is Yahweh, which is the God of the Israelite people. Yep. Everything right of demarcation is the dark is a dark night. Yeah, I, I believe that to be true. Yeah. Yeah, I only use the word guess because I hate to be exact, overly exact when you know some of the specifics aren't exactly said. But but they had light in their homes. It says that all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Yeah, so they had light. So they did. I was reading in uh, an interpretation of where they lived, and my mind was that particularly, but it doesn't make that. Yeah, no, it doesn't make that distinction. It's not limited to their homes. Anything else? I'm, I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you... I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, we're not... We're talking about Egypt and Goshen, but I think that's exactly right. Because it's in Egypt where the light is thick. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the rest of the earth. Imagine the people living up in Canaan. You know, what happened? It would be irrelevant. I mean, it would be no connect. It wouldn't make any sense. For this to have gone anywhere but to Egypt itself. All right. Well, we're about six after, so I'm going to say thank you very much. Next week, we're going to start into a longer study of the last plague because it has tentacles that go everywhere, and that's the Passover. <laughs>